Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Tom Milner and Will Coldberg from Contact Asset Management. Contact AM is the investment manager behind the BKI-listed investment company, the Washington H. Sol Pattinson Large Cap Portfolio, and an X50 fund. Will and Tom join me via video link from their Sydney office, with a photo of the Contact racing horse behind them. Tom and Will share the story of their early life, lessons learned working for their family businesses, permanent capital and funds management, investing for dividends, and the importance of a long-term focus. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Welcome to the show, Tom and Will. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. This is the first recording we've done with three people with a video format, so um, we've had a few technical mishaps, mostly on my end. But um, I'm hoping the, the guys can listen to this and, and the guys and girls that listen to this, they can watch it also on our YouTube channel. So feel free to go over and have a look at that. But guys, what I thought we'd do is uh, with this longer form com- conversation is I'd like to understand a bit more about who you are. But because there's three of us or particularly two of you, what we might do is we might take it one at a time. And because you know each other so well, feel free to jump in and uh, kind of explain any sort of situations or stories or recall any good memories that you have of each other or just that you might have passed along to one another over the years. But why don't we start off with you, Tom? Um, I think people will be familiar with you with your time at BKI, but maybe you can just tell us a bit more about you, where you grew up. And I'm really looking for that kind of that genesis story, how you come to be um, an investor. But maybe instead of going all the way up to your time now, why don't we just go to your, your childhood, early childhood and leading up to university? Yeah, sure. As, as we said before, thank you very much for having us on the show. Um, I grew up in Cowra, which is in the central west New South Wales, mm-hmm. on, a, on a cattle property, uh, which was purchased by, by my grandfather um, in the 1950s. Um, it, was a, it was a very good upbringing. Um, you know, I taught you how to work hard. We had a cattle property, so the whole circle of life thing was, was sort of born on us pretty early. You learn how to ride, ride a motorbike and drive a car at an early age and a tractor and all that sort of thing. So it was a, it was a really good upbringing. We didn't didn't have any sort of big flashy holidays as kids either. So you know we'd spend a lot of time fishing and and and, and shooting and, and water skiing and camping and all that sort of thing. So it was a really really good upbringing. Um, I suppose finance and business and that sort of thing on a farm you don't really become aware of of that element you you work hard but you just work because that's what you do and you know we weren't ever paid pocket money or anything like that for doing chores you just sort of got it got it Mm. done and did it i think the the first memory of actually doing anything for for any sort of money was the the camalco cash for can incentive in the in the early 80s my my grandfather and, and dad were very involved in the Cowra Rugby Club and, you know, big, big days versus Forbes and Grenfell and, and Parks. They, you know, all the parents used to probably drink a fair bit in the early 80s and 
there's a lot of cans lying around. So as a kid, I used to go around with Hessian bags and grab them and um, take them into the local guy. And, and then I sort of stumbled across the fact that you put a teaspoon of sand in each of them, made them weigh a little bit more, you, <laughs> you, you earn a bit more money. So um, I was telling Will that story before and he, I think he hopes that I'm a bit more ethical than that now. Which is probably right, but I think as a 10-year-old <laughs> kid, I thought it was genius. Hopefully no one's listening to this. They can call you up. <laughs> so that, was, that was my first real, I suppose, chance of earning any pocket money. You know, you'd go and buy a tennis racket or a footy or something like that. And that was the first thing. But I, as, a, as, a, as a business sort of sense, I, I think it was more sitting around the Christmas table, you know, Milner families talking about the pharmacy and, and how pharmaceuticals were going and, what investment souls were looking at and that sort of thing. I didn't understand a lot of it as a kid, but I always found it pretty intriguing. Um, so that was that was sort of the element of, of getting into the, the finance part down the track. But, um, you know, there was never never really anything pushed on us by doing, you know, business or reading mm. economic books or anything like that. How about you, Will? Um I think many people will be familiar with the Miller story, um, but chances are many will also be familiar with your story. I know there was a write-up in the AFR recently uh, about you from uh, Tom Richardson, one of my old colleagues. Um, perhaps you can give us your backstory, where you grew up, and I guess um, anything that you took away from your parents and, and their business and, I guess, even grandparents. Yeah, no, sure. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so I'm, I'm a... Sydney, born and bred, um, grew up in Lane Cove and uh, you know, like, like Tom, had a very happy childhood. I have one sister, we're still very close. Uh, my father had a furniture manufacturing business that my grandfather had started. So Pop was a, a US war veteran. He was, he was a coder during the war and then met Gran during one of his um, furloughs and, and then they fell in love and he, he, he built a life in Australia. So he and a few mates set up a business called Everett Worthington, which was um, in St. Peter's originally. And then uh, they got their big break when TV came in and they made big, massive furniture cabinets. They were kind of six to eight foot long and uh, that was kind of the start of his success story. And Dad joined that business, which had then evolved to more bedroom furniture and home entertainment furniture and, and things like that too. And um, that was out at Reevesby. And... Yeah, that was that was the family business, and, and mum was at home and looked after Amy and I, and um, yeah, we had a really good life and um, spent a lot of time together. And then, so in terms of uh, the stock market, it wasn't really you know a, a big part of our family at all. I think uh, it was all about the, the furniture business and you know the property that underpinned that. And in the Christmas holidays, from probably twelve years old. We'd go out and work on the on the packing line and in the furniture um, in the factory, and and that was you know, it was hard work, and it, but it was good, and you know, it taught my sister and I the value of education and the value of working hard, and but also you know the importance of working with other people and having a good culture, and uh, Dad and Pop would walk the floor and talk to everyone, and it was um, it, it was good, but it was a um, it, it's a tough industry manufacturing, and it's become tougher, and. I mean, my teenage years, it was changing a lot already uh, and it's, it's changed a lot more now. Um, I wasn't uh, looking at it that closely back then, but as I worked there more, you know, going into university, it wasn't really my passion. I spoke to Dad and Pop about that and 
being the only son in the third generation, it was a it was a discussion I was a little bit nervous about, to be honest. But uh, they were very, you know, they they wanted me to do what where my passion lay, and eventually um, I studied finance at uni and, and came down this path. But it was a um, you know, similar to what Tom said. You know, we were fortunate to have really happy childhoods and good families, and you know. Be close to having that, you know, the farm was one family business, the furniture is another family business, but you, you know, mm. from that age, you, yeah. How about, well, I'm particularly interested in knowing how, I guess, that experience working in the family business shaped you and then um, I guess if, if there's any opportunity for you to reflect on that now and kind of how it adapted you to, I guess, old markets and, and how we think about businesses today. I mean, you mentioned there that, Manufacturing is pretty tough these days, right? But the, I know that you guys have somewhat industrial focus, and, and you you know you have businesses that pay dividend yields and all these things that we can typically associate with industrial style companies. Um, is there anything there that? And, I, and I'm, I'm going to um, ruin the surprise here, but maybe it's not much of a surprise. But you both, Charlie and, and Warren Buffett fans, and um, there's a few other names we'll get to throughout the conversation. But you know, he's the famous saying is better businessman because it's a better investor. So I'm wondering how that rubbed off on you there, Will, and then maybe we'll jump across the top. Yeah, so just on that manufacturing side, I think it's it's it teaches you a lot about cycles along as well in there, and not just from an economic perspective, but things like fads as well. And so as that business developed, it went from, as I said, TV to then um, bedroom suites. And you'd go to Grace Brothers and David Jones back in the old days and you'd buy you'd buy the whole bed, cabinets, cupboards, mm. the works, um, to then evolve actually into more entertainment furniture and computer desks and then flat pack furniture. And you know, Harvey Norman and Freedom would be important customers when I was working there in the early 90s. And um, now that too, fads changed. So if you consider now, you know, the, bit, the, most, the busiest part of the, of the year was just after Christmas. Everyone had gone and bought a TV or a new computer and they needed a stand or a desk to put it on. And now... Every TV is on the wall and everyone's got a laptop on their kitchen bench. So you kind of, the two key products just don't exist anymore. So I think um, from that perspective, I think it's, it's you, know, you realise the importance of, of fads and cycles. Um, but then manufacturing as well is just, we've lost competitiveness in Australia. And then as imports increased, things like IKEA came in uh, and it made it, it made it really difficult. So it's a very capital intensive business, but, you know, talking about Munger and Buffett, they increasingly talk about a couple of light businesses are becoming more and more valuable, mm-hmm. um, but it's a it, it was a it was a good upbringing of just seeing how the how the business cycle worked, and then also you know we had the advantage I suppose as well that in the, you know, that late eighties was a boom, early nineties was you know, a pretty difficult period, and we're kind of old enough to have have seen that last kind of recession in Australia too, which was a you know when you're when you're home in the family business it you know, had a pretty pretty impact on you mm, for sure it would. How about, how about you, Tom? I noticed that um, after school, you, if correct me if I'm wrong here, you went and got a, a Bachelor of Industrial Design. Is that correct? Yep, that's yeah. right. <laughs> how did that conversation go? Um, obviously, being investors at, at, at home, saying, you know, I'm going to go study this Bachelor of Industrial Design. And then I guess I'm interested in the turning point back towards investing as well. Yeah, sure. It was, it was quite easy, Owen. You know, we, a bit like Will and his family, we were always encouraged to do what we loved and what we were good at and what our passion was. And mine was being creative and, you know, I like working with metal and welding and um, I suppose that's a bit of a farming influence as, as well. 
you know, as a, as a kid, if you broke something, you had to quickly fix it. So you learned how to weld very quickly. Um, and so, I, you know, I developed a passion for, I suppose, design and, and, and creative um, arts. And then I got into, got into sculpture. Uh, so I went to Newcastle Uni, did industrial design, which was a great, really great practical course. Um, and I, I sculpted for quite a few years and uh, did a bit of traveling and then went back to the family farm for, for a couple of years. And then I suppose the point where it all sort of began to interweave itself was um, I entered the sculptures uh, by the sea in Bondi with a, with a mate from Cowra and we made um, these, these crabs and we made 15 really big crabs out of old farm parts and and we did well. We, we won a couple of awards and won the People's Choice Award. And, you know, that was wonderful, but it was really hard, really hard work and trying to find the next exhibition. And then you work out that the commission, they take 30 or 40% off you. And, you know, it was really tough. And then so at the t- same time as, as that, I'd been sort of working in the, the family businesses as well. And, um, you know, Dad approached me after I'd sort of spent two years back in Cowra and said, look, we're looking for a junior analyst role in one of our investment companies. This was in 2000, early 2002, January, just after September 11. The things weren't great, but I thought, right, I'll come to Sydney, I'll have a, have a go. And I just actually really enjoyed it. Um, and that was the sort of first real time I'd sunk my teeth into, into investing properly. Um, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. And so, so after the sculptures by the sea was finished, I thought, right, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. Um, I've enjoyed it. I could always come back to it if I if I want to have it as a as a hobby. Um, and then you know we sort of Priscilla and I started a, a family at the same time, and it sort of all all went from there. Mm. So were you two? And I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but were you two friends growing up? Did you know each other? Yeah, yeah, we did. We and um, our families knew each other. Our dads knew each other from the, from their school days, but we weren't. Every, every summer holidays, we might catch up for a family barbecue and maybe see each other once a year on the sporting field or something. But it was, um, yeah, quite, right. Pretty good acquaintances, the two families. Yeah. So, how about that next step for you, Will? Um, I know you spent a bit of time overseas. Um, you did your bachelor of business. Maybe you can talk us up to the point that you, you joined BKI and um, maybe even why you went across to BKI in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, as you see, I did a Bachelor of Business uh, and was really fortunate that um, I, I had a job at Salmat during that time. We had good family friends with the Phil Soldier and Peter Maddock and they built successful catalogues and laser printing business at the time and I worked there during uni and that was, that was really valuable. I learned a lot from those two and, um, and, and, and something that Tom and I reflect on a bit is that there's a lot of mates and business that doesn't work mm-hmm. and Pete and Phil were two guys who were schoolmates and they'd set up a business together in the late 70s and they were, for mine, a really great success story of mates and businesses that did work. And um, we actually spent a bit of time with, with Pete when Tom and I first started working together and kind of said, well, uh, what are the rules? And uh, one of the key things he said to us was, um, you know, you're going to make a lot of decisions together, but the rule is you can never say to each other, I told you so. Once you make a decision, you're in it together. And it's been a really valuable lesson for us. But then he looked at us both and said, what are you worried about? You're going to have a lot of fun too. And, and, and we have. So it's been, it's been nice. And it's good to work with someone who's a good mate, but someone you trust and trying to build something together as well. So um, Sal, Matt and Pete and Phil were, were very valuable for me as well. So then um, my, my first 
role was I, I then got a after uni I got a job with Challenger in, in the early days. They were selling in Dammit Warrants then and then after a couple of years there I went over to the UK for two years on a on a working holiday visa and had a lot of fun. And then I came back and probably similar time to Tom, it was 2002, it was, um, the economy was, was probably a little bit fragile. And I, I got a job with Concord Capital, which was a, a small fund manager, a boutique fund manager. They had, uh, they'd spun out of MLC, employee owned, uh, and growing quite quickly as industry super funds became more prevalent and they looked at active managers. And there was, a, I started in the back office and then I got a lot of support from the, the directors of, of that business, they put me through a Masters of Commerce and kind of just gradually had a turn at doing the dealing and then did some equities analysis and then um, was there for 11 years and ended up being a portfolio manager there. So um, it was great, it was a very good business. But then uh, that business got acquired by Invesco in the US and um, through through kind of no, no fault of Invesco, I kind of changed the, the model a bit where it had gone from employee owned mm. um, to, to not and a lot of clients didn't like that and it was the big lesson for me there was that we had 10 to 12 big clients five or six billion dollars and some of them then didn't like the change in ownership and they pulled their money and all of a sudden you walk in and you're dealing with a 700 million dollar outflow and you own mm-hmm. 25 stocks and then the stocks get smashed and the next client comes along and they say well your performance is gone mm. we're out too and you, you're getting this death spiral and you know the the beauty of bki and that list investment company permanent capital investing is the opposite to that so mm. you don't have to worry about a big mandate being pulled and you can really invest for the long term so um i learned a lot during those 11 years and i was very grateful for that but i think this model of having some some permanent capital too you know enables you to take longer term decisions Mm. Mm. Absolutely. We'll get to the, the, the idea behind permanent capital in just a moment, but maybe I'll throw it over to you then, Tom. Did, did you, when you were at BKI, did you call up Will and, and say, hey, what do you think about this? I know, I know you guys were at BKI for a few years, um, and I'll, we'll, go, we'll give you all the listeners an overview of the, I guess, the family of brands, but how did you guys come to work together? Well, let me just finish quickly on that other story, because what happened was then he got... We lost so much money that Invesco closed the business. Okay. Um, and well, the Sydney, the Sydney office at least. And so I was then out of a job. And um, Tom and I we become kind of reacquainted by that point, met through the markets. And I, and I actually asked Tom if I could just come and help him out a day or two a week and have a base in the city. Right. I, I looked for another job. And um, that, was, that was great. That, that helped me out. That, that was and it was good for both of us. I put, it, I put him to work immediately, Owen. Yeah, when was this? <laughs> so this was early 2013. Yeah, right, okay. Because so BKI was quite established then. We'd, mm. you know, we'd listed in 2003, um, and we'd grown from 170 million to about 400 million. And then in about 2013, we did another equity raising and raised 150 million, I think, for memory, which sort of took us over that threshold of, um, I suppose, importance, liquidity, scale from the LIC point of view. We're always trying to keep up with the Miltons, the Afikanagos of the world, which have been around for decades and really well run and established businesses and have got great scale and, you know, anywhere between sort of 30 and 90,000 shareholders each. 
Now, this capital raising put us into that sort of next band where we were all of a sudden managing $700 million. And then so once Will was in the, in the city, in the, in the office, working with us for a while, um, we worked really well together. We'd already, as Will said, become good mates again. Uh, we trusted each other. We were bouncing ideas off each other. And as we grew, it sort of went from me being the CEO and sole employee to being needing to find a portfolio manager or a senior investment analyst. So it was very easy when we did the search. Yeah. Basically, yell over the room and say, "Will you mind if I put your name forward to the BKI board?" And we're yeah. happy to to work together. And that was 2013, and it's it's gone pretty well since. Um, for those listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the BKI business and, and maybe a bit of background on, on Sol Pattinson as well, maybe, uh, Tom, I'll throw it to you um, before we get into the contact story, just to explain kind of like the, the family of brands and how they, they all fall together today. Sure. Uh, well, let's, let's just stick with BKI just while we're on, on, that, on that theme and it sort mm-hmm. of, it'll, it'll hopefully highlight the, the, the strategy that we've, that we've had at, at Souls over, over a long period of time. Uh, Souls and Brickworks uh, created a cross-shareholdership in the, in the 60s. Um, it was one way of Souls diversifying out of pharmaceuticals into other industries and investments. And, and Brickworks was the, the, basically the first of, of those investments. And then my great-uncle Jim Milner and, and Dad started to then acquire you know, shares, listed shares, uh, Commonwealth Bank shares, Westpac shares, uh, BHP, etc., uh, and, and built a reasonable portfolio. And then so did, so did Brickworks, uh, because Jim was also the chairman of, of Brickworks and Dad was on the board. So they 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 kept these cash flow uh, businesses reinvesting into into equities. Mm-hmm. A, a to capture franking credits, but B also to, to hopefully you know grow and compound earnings over over time. So both businesses um, set up some pretty good equity positions and then Brickworks acquired Bristol roof tiles uh, in 2003 and needed some capital so rather than raise money they they went out and sold their uh, equity portfolio and and listed BKI Hmm. so that's how that's how BKI was born out of Brickworks and so we grew it grew it from there and I think from from that sort of strategy at that time we'd also listed SP Telemedia out of out of Sol Pat's uh, we just listed uh, New Hope Group out of Soul Pat. So we'd sort of incubated these small companies for, for a long time and, and grew up with them. And then all of a sudden, we'd sort of launched them and, and put them on the stock market and, and co-invested with other, other investors. And that's, that's how BKI um, was, was born, was, was out of a, a business that was, I suppose, incubated within, within the group. And I guess that's, it comes back to that idea of permanent capital, permanent equity, again, and the support that a big brother can lend to many of these smaller brands that, you know, like you said, have been incubated so successfully. Um, Will, maybe I'll throw it over to you now. Uh, can you tell us, I guess, the genesis of the contact brand um, and bring us up to today, the, the three strategies that you guys uh, manage, um, your day-to-day, um, and just kind of how it all sits together in your average day, I guess. Sure. So the... The contact story itself, as you can kind of see behind us now, we have a few horse mm. racing pitches. And a couple of years after Tom and I started working together, Tom's great aunt and moved out of the, her family home and Tom found a few scrapbooks and bought in these old leather scrapbooks and he knew that my great-grandfather had been a horse trainer and trained a Melbourne Cup winner and back in the 40s. 
And Tom said, I found these old books. And he said, what was your great-grandfather's name? And I said, oh, it was Danny Lewis. <laughs> he said, oh, are you kidding me? And he said, look at this. And we opened the scrapbook and there's all these clippings of, of Tom's great-grandfather, Max Cleveran, and, and my great-grandfather who owned horses together. And, and um, Danny Lewis trained them and Max was an accountant and they had a pretty successful partnership together. And uh, the best horse they had was called Contact. And Contact won the 1936 Sydney Cup and back in the day that was the, the autumn equivalent of the Melbourne Cup. And I uh, ran fourth, I think, in the, yep. in the in the Melbourne Cup. And um, it was just a it was a story that you know we talked about that our fathers had known each other, and it was both their grandfather, and that story kind of been lost in the in the generation. So we've got um, you know, we've got a few of the clippings here and the finishing post photo in the office, and it's just a nice uh, added history that kind of glues it all together, which, which, which is nice. So then um, after a couple of years of BKI, we thought it'd be good to kind of maybe try and um, do some other things as well, and we both had a bit bit more ambition than uh, on on top of running BKI, and we thought we could uh, add some other products and, and strategies going forward. So at the end of uh, 2016, we established contact with the two of us, and um, we own 40% each, and Sol Pads owns 20%. And the first product we brought to market was was Herb Investments, which has since been taken over. Um, and we now, as you say, have, have three strategies. So the first one being BKI that Tom just spoke about. So BKI is a listed investment company, 18,000 shareholders, to market capitalization of a touch over a billion dollars, big focus on long-term investing uh, and income generation for our shareholders. And we're shareholders in, in this and, and all of the products that we're, we're gonna talk yeah. about. Uh, so a lot of the shareholders there are self-managed super funds and the income is obviously very important. Mm. Um, as Tom also mentioned, the second product is then the, the Sol Pats large cap portfolio. So that is essentially the portfolio that sits on Sol's balance sheet. The, the right. After that as well. Uh, that's a mandate that, that we manage. And that's got $300 million yeah. dollars, dollars in it. That, that's the BKI equivalent we were just talking about in the Brickworks portfolio. Yeah. And again, that's an important income generator for you know, to, to help um, to help fund part of the, the Solpats dividend as well and part of their, their income. And then we've just developed a, a new fund, which is only a month old, which is Next 50 mm. uh, Unit Trust. Uh, that's the Contact Australia Next 50 fund that we've seeded with our money. And uh, the strategy there is to buy high quality businesses that sit outside the top 50. Mm. Um, income's again a, a focus. And we'll talk about our process too. So the process, um, flows over all three, but they're, they're the they're the three products we have in, in our suite at the moment. And then we're we're looking at formalising uh, a kind of large cap product that's similar unit trust strategy to the to the X50 fund going forward as well. So uh, over time we'll have four. Yeah, right. It's, it seems like, so from the outside, for people who are not familiar with the way investment management works and with mandates, it seems like your day would be pretty busy um, overseeing three things. But I guess there's so much synergy um, between the funds, the strategy, the team, but also just in your process. So what you look at, the way you think about investing, you already mentioned that income is, is a focus, dividends is a focus, franking credits are a focus. Um, why don't I throw it over to Tom now? Tom. Um, why don't you just give us a high level 
you know, what's the, what are you trying to do as you, you, you source this income? What are the, the pillars that you're, you're working to each day when you have your daily meetings and those types of things? Um, we've got five pillars that we look at and I think they've probably evolved out of the souls group over many generations of, of looking at new investment opportunities. And, and you're right in what you say, the process is the same. It doesn't matter if you're looking at a, a building product business or a pharmaceutical business or a retailer or a resource company. Mm. The view is that the, the process is similar, it's robust and it's repeatable. So we've got five pillars. The first one is principal activity. Um, and basically under that banner is what does the company do? How do they make money? Do we understand it? Because there's been a lot of investments by a lot of people over many years going into something they just don't understand and, it, and, it's, and, it, and it's burnt them. So that's the first thing, principal activity. Second one is income. And we've already talked about it a little bit, but as simple as it is, as simple as it sounds, a company paying a dividend, there's a lot that has gone on for that company to be able to have paid a dividend. Mm. You know, it's got to be successful. It's got to have been around for a while. It's had to have made profits. It's had to be very successful. Most of the time it's paid tax and generated imputational franking credits. So we get, you know, a dividend or a frank dividend. So the, the ability of a company to pay a dividend for us is really quite important. Uh, the next one is the balance sheet and the strength of the balance sheet because without a strong balance sheet, you can't pay dividends and you go through cycles like we're in now and every second company with a weak balance sheet is raising money, which dilutes shareholders and it's not, a, it's not a great way to manage a long-term business, we don't think. So balance sheet strength is another uh, key element. Uh, the fourth pillar is management. Um, the people that run the business dedicate, you know, that they're... 5, 10, 15, 20 years of their life to this business and, and they, they usually send that, that business down, down a path and if they're a good manager, it's, it'll be a good path and if, it's not, if they're not a good manager, they tend to blow the thing up. So mm. the good quality managers, um, and we'll talk this about this probably a bit later, but the founders in, in most cases um, are managers of a lot of businesses that we own, um, we, we, we generally support as well. Mm. And the fifth pillar is valuation. And we might do all the work on a stock but the valuation doesn't stack up um, and we wait for moments like we're in at the moment or you know another 12 years ago in the gfc where where we we're very active as well of, of buying stocks that we've watched for many many years but just couldn't get our head around the valuation we've done the work but the you know the cycles in our favor and we've been able to pull the trigger on on the investment so they're the main they're the main five and we try and stick to that process always right as much always. as we can yeah Maybe we can loop back through them a bit and um, maybe we'll take it with, we'll start at the top with uh, kind of the, I guess the principal activity or competitive advantage of this business. I think um, if I could maybe loop this in with the, the income focus too, from the outside what I see is that, and from the impression I get from you is that the, the income is a result of the resilience of a business and another word for that in the share market is quality and competitive advantage and those types of things. Will, maybe you can reflect on this. I, I read in one of the X50 fund documents that you had that, um, you know, you like to stress test a competitive advantage. So, I mean, we know that we all do the same research. Well, some of us do the same research, but then there's some of us that can go further, some of us that can think differently because they have permanent capital, because they, you know, they can take their time with decisions, don't have to worry about so much the flows and that type of thing. I'm interested in your thoughts, Will, around... How do you stress test competitive advantage? What are you looking for? Maybe you've got some counterpoints here or something like that. That's no, a good question. It's really important. I mean, 
We are, so in addition to Tom and I, we have another five analysts as well. So we have a, a pretty robust team now. We have a, a checklist as well that we we go through. There's what, 40 questions on, on the checklist yeah. and um, and it breaks these five points down into a few more questions as well. And, and the, the checklist is a good discipline in some ways for things we don't want to do, but it also encourages the team to you know, make sure we read the annual report, to understand the business and, and pretty much get out there and, and walk the tiles, if you will. Um, so yeah, a good example of what we did a few years ago on this and testing the competitive advantage was with Woolworths. And uh, you may recall probably what we went five years ago, Woolworths was a, a low $20 stock. Yeah. Uh, it was under threat from Coles, was, was growing reasonably well. But the, the bigger concern in the market was probably Audi uh, and Costco. Mm. Uh, and then you know, and then people were looking offshore at companies like Tesco and some of the UK supermarkets on the margin decline that, that could come. And so we actually tested the theory of, well, is Woolworths a lot more expensive than others are saying, or will they lose, you know, will margins be at risk? And Tom and I actually jumped in his, in his ute and we went out and we, we did a, a basket of goods test at Audi, Woolies and Coles. And, you know, we bought the a Vegemite toilet paper, we didn't forget toilet paper. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's the milk, just some 50 to $60 of, of household goods, basically. Uh, and then we went to Costco as well. But uh, what we found was that uh, where Woolworths had that select, they're like a good, better, best strategy going on, and the select product was was wrong, but they were actually the cheapest of the three. And the hmm. perception and the reality were actually two different things. And Audi had a few tricks where the Vegemite was slightly smaller, and the, you, know, you didn't have quite as many rolls of toilet paper, for example. And when we looked into it and saw that um, what was actually the reality was that Woolworths sell a very competitive product um, and were up doing up their stores. Their online offering was improving. Um, we knew that that competitive advantage that had been there for so long wasn't dead. And we bought pretty aggressively. Um, we then went to Costco. Um, and we're walking around Costco, writing down prices, and the, and the guy running the, the, the oh. liquor section came up to us. The biggest human being you've ever seen turned up and basically his shirt fronted us and said, what are you doing with writing all the prices down? <laughs> Um, I don't know, we said, oh, we're just trying to check and convince our wives that you should, should shop at Costco. <laughs> Two grown <laughs> men. Information, so we, we, we head out of there pretty quickly. It sounds like a pretty unusual day, but it was a really insightful day and it gave us the conviction that you know, Woolworths is a company worth owning and the competitive advantage is long-lasting. And um, it was, it was, you know, it's been a really successful investment for us since then. So... Um, and you, know, unfortunately, you can't do that with every business. You don't have the opportunity to walk into every business. But you know, we look at things like return on invested capital as well as a competitive advantage. We think that above almost any other financial metric tells you so much about is management doing a good job as well as is the other returns sustainable and can they grow? And um, you know, we often see that businesses that are having a declining return on capital, return on equity, often the share price follows. So that too for us is a pretty important determinant of competitive advantage also. Mm, absolutely. So, Tom, maybe um, when we step through the next one is the income focus. I think most people know the, the backstory with, with Soles or Solpats. Um, incredible dividend track record, um, you know, decades. Um, is that where this comes from or is this a, it's kind of a new thing to you? You know, have you done some study on this with regards to total returns or something like that? 
bit of both, Owen. I think, I think when you manage money, you've always got to be conscious of who you're managing money for and what their objective is and what you've told them you're going to do. And I think when we started BKI in 2003, it was a, it was a traditional LIC with, with sort of capital preservation and, and the view of increasing our dividend over time. So that was very important right from the start at BKI and I think also at Sol's, you know, the, the, the Washington 8 Sol Pattinson shareholder was, was, a, was a co-owner of, of the stock with the family and we all, we all like dividends and we'd been successful so we were happy to share that with everyone. And I think, you know, from, from that you then, I suppose, become educated on that actual investment that, yes, this company has proven itself over a long time. Its, its product or its service that it, that it offers is, is, is a good one. It's been around a long time. It's it survives cycles. Um, it can it can share those rewards um, with with shareholders. But I think the other thing to always keep an eye on is that they're not paying out too much because once you get to 80, 90, 100% of an operating business uh, being paid out in in dividends, there's obviously not enough left to go back into the business and reinvest for for future growth. So. Good dividends, high dividends are wonderful, but you don't want to be too greedy because you've always got to put a bit back in the till and invest mm. in a refresh program or or an acquisition to, to enhance growth or, or something like that to, to keep up with the changing times of, of that business. So it's, there's a few more dynamics than, than just putting your hand out and receiving a fully frank dividend. How do you how do you monitor that insofar as is this, is, is this like a return on capital thing or how do you keep tabs on whether the business is allocating the capital effectively, whether it be to shareholders, buybacks, or what have you? Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a blend. I think every company is different. Um, every company, you know, may may see the opportunity to to have a buyback, or or they might have a, a growth program, or a refurb program, or an exploration program, or, or whatever whatever it is. So I think it's a stock specific. Um, element there but it's something they've always got to be doing something for the future because you just you just get left behind otherwise you know if if Woolworths and Coles even in this environment hadn't spent a lot of money billions of dollars over the years having the best food offering service offering online offering um, being able to source products off millions of producers they, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing today even in this environment so it's it's very important that we that we do keep an eye on that, and it's it's sort of different metrics per, per stock. Yeah, it is. We just we just want to be very conscious of. Um, it depends a little bit, I think, as well, where the business is in its life cycle. If a business is growing quite rapidly and there's wonderful reinvestment opportunities, well, you'd hope the payout ratio is a little bit lower. Um, and you know, certainly, some of these companies we're looking at in the X50 space, the payout ratios are 30, 40 percent, but the mm. returns are in the 20s. So now, that to us makes sense, but one of the things we look at in terms of backtesting is just the importance of dividends in the accumulation index, for example, where a lot of the media headlines talk about the index is at 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 points, and you know, we're not back to pre-GFC levels. But if you look at the All Lords Accumulation Index, where you're valuing the reinvestment of the dividends, well, you know, the last 10 years up to the, you know, the highs in February, returns you're getting are actually very significant. So um, dividends are, are really important and we just, you know, we think that sometimes goes underappreciated. Mm. Yeah, and I think um, with BKI's 
you know, with the management cost in particular, I'm going to call out BKR here, even Solpats again, um, as co-owners, you know, that income focus really plays a big part in that return rate. So yeah. one of the things that I noticed about BKI is, and correct me if I'm wrong, the 0.1% management fee, um, which seems to me you know, be incredibly low. So I guess, where did that come from? When we externalise the management function out of BKI, when Will and I set up contact asset management, we were very conscious of not being the fund managers that you know gouges the the shareholder and charges the big the big management fee. So basically, what we what we worked on was our salaries, or the, the costs of having a, a PM and a, and a, a um, CEO, what that was equivalent to from a management fee point of view, and it was about ten basis points. So what we what we offered shareholders in the in the agreement was was a ten basis point management fee, with the the upside of as we grew contact, you'd then get access as a as a BKI shareholder to more and more resources and a, and a bigger, broader team. So so that's how it came about, and you know we're very proud of that. It's a it's a very low fee. I find it very hard. I think Willie. If, we found anyone else in the market that would charge a fee as low as, as, low as that for a, a closed-end traditional LIC, mm. externally managed business. Mm. And again, I would, we've harped on about this, but alignment. You know, we, we own, as a board and management team, probably $55, $60 million worth of BKI shares. So we were shareholders as well. We didn't want to get gouged. We wanted to focus on growth and, and dividends and not pay excessive management fees. Yeah, great. Indeed, with the new X50 fund, we've priced that well below the market. I mean, we do have a performance fee on that one, but the, the unique characteristic of that is that we have to outperform the benchmark, but we have to ensure that the, the return is positive. So we only win if the investor wins. And we just see some fund managers where they take a performance fee because they've outperformed an index, but they've lost money. They just didn't mm. lose quite as much. And that just, we don't think that's appropriate. And, and again, we think it's, you know, we want to be aligned with the shareholders as well. Yeah, great. How about when it comes to balance sheet? I know I read a slide deck uh, from, from you guys that said that, you know, you're looking at all the standard metrics, uh, credit rating, uh, multiples of uh, debt repayments, those types of things. Uh, there, is there anything in particular that you're looking at? You know, we've seen, we've seen changes to leases and those types of things being on balance sheet. Um, franking credits could be effectively an off-balance sheet asset. Are there any kind of tricks or, or tips you can you can offer us in that respect? Well, yeah, I suppose those those last few points you raise are really valid. You got to you got to be pretty flexible with changing accounting standards um, and that, and those sort of policies. So you got to be a bit flexible there. But I think you know if a business has got to be able to service debt. You know, a, a company may have fifty percent gearing, but it might also generate significant cash flows. So you've got to be careful that you don't just put a, a, a gearing parameter around around investment um, opportunities. So I, I just think that what we've seen the last, say, month now and, and what we saw in the GFC, it, it, it was one simple thing that brought a lot of these businesses unstuck and it was the, was the balance sheet and the inability of, of those companies to be able to serve that debt. Mm. doesn't matter how big it, you know, even a company with gearing of, of 10%, if there's, if there's a big interest payment due and the doors are shut, then that business is in trouble, but it may only have a small gearing percentage. Mm. I guess that comes back to your, your, your quality focus with regards to competitive advantage. And if you're looking for businesses that can 
obviously paid dividends. So they're going to be businesses that probably have you know pretty sound margins, and you can make some, you can bake in some assumptions there that you know kind of lend itself to that resilience piece that we we talked about earlier. How about uh, management? And I'll throw this over to both of you, perhaps. One of my favourite things is actually talking to management and sometimes leading them down the garden path. And, you know, you can befriend them and, and you can kind of get things out of them that maybe they otherwise wouldn't if, you're, if they weren't as comfortable. Are there any particular stories? And I guess because I find that one of the best ways with management is counterpoints. Sometimes the best stories are the ones that went bad. But sometimes there are some really good stories there too. And I, and I imagine you have quite a few. So... You know, maybe we can just take this one at a time, just jump in, feel free, guys. Um, what you're looking for, maybe some stories or anything like that you have on hand. I think to start with, what we're trying to do with these five pillars is interwind the whole process. So I think management then ties back into to balance sheet. So typically, typically, if you've got a founder that owns a significant share in a business, the balance sheet's one thing that they keep an eye on, a really mm -hmm. close eye on. If their name's on the door or their family name's still part of the business, you know that the balance sheet is is manageable and, and under control. Um, and then and then obviously the, the the income part is under control as well. So that's probably the tie into the to the process. But you know we've we've picked some companies with great management teams. You know we'll, we're not too proud to say that we've picked some doozies as well. <laughs> we're very big on if there's a change in management at the top level it's a reason just to revisit the investment case as well. And, and um, you know, we, as Tom said, we've got a couple of businesses where management have come in and change, or, you know, they often then bring their cronies with them. Mm. A lot of yes men and, you know, and often, often it goes wrong. But for us, one of the biggest things in assessing management is are they aligned with us? And Tom talked about founder-led businesses, and, you know, we've got a, a few of those in ARB, Magellan, Reese. Um, Harvey Norman, all pretty good examples of, of those kind of businesses. But then we spent a bit of time with our guys and go, well, what's, what's the incentive structure? And is that appropriate? And you kind of find then that you know, if, if these management teams are appropriately aligned, and it goes back to the, the Charlie Munger quote of, you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. And we think that that's pretty powerful. Um, management teams we don't like is when a CEO gets up and says, I, a lot. We reckon that's not a bad red flag of, of how they're thinking about probably putting management first and shareholders second. Um, historically, that's been not a bad test. If you look at transcripts, a CEO who talks about I rather than we uh, would probably, I imagine, underperform um, and speaks a bit about the culture of the business also. That'd so, be an interesting one if someone had a had some data handy if they could run that across the transcript and, and see what the outcome are. I, I tend to agree with you, my intuition, my gut feels would say much the same. You're, you're indicating, Owen, all the, all the uh, an analytics that you could run on big data on that now, you could probably do that work. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a bit above my pay rate, but uh, I'm sure someone, one of the listeners probably will, will go out there and do it. But sorry, Will, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, that, that the, I think that was the main points we wanted to make. But I think, you know, we, we really, you know, we try and invest in our products and our shareholders and we like management teams that do the same thing. Mm. And how about the last one? Um, in terms of valuation, um, is this a, a deal breaker for you? I get the sense that because of the, the way that you're, you've, you've kind of crafted your investment process around that philosophy of a long-term focus, I get the sense that valuation maybe isn't the be-all and end-all for your process here. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I think with any sort of good or service, you, you get what you pay for a lot of the time. So, you know, there's been a lot of businesses that are trade 5, 10, 15, 20% premium to the market always. And that's mm-hmm. the that's the sort of valuation you have to pay to, to own a, a good quality stock. Um, it's probably the discount on that on that premium where we, we see some some value emerging. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're able to be very patient and, and wait for that. But yeah, there's no good paying seven times PE multiple for a stock that's never going to you know, trade at 10, 11, 12 times. It's always going to be seven or less because mm-hmm. you, you're, you're simply just paying for a, a low quality business. Mm-hmm. I find that there's just as much art as there is science in valuations. And you can, when we talked about, we have models in all our companies, but you can, as you know, you don't have to tweak a discount rate or a terminal growth rate too much to get a massively different answer. So a lot of the discussion we have with our team is, you know, let's test the sensitivity to the valuation. You know, if they, you know, what happens around some of the margin assumptions or the revenue assumptions, and what does that do then to the, to the base case? So um, we think we use that in the valuation more than trying to have a prescriptive, this thing's worth $1.22. Um, we, found, we find that more useful. But um, we also find that if the, the other four pillars of the process are really strong and we think then the valuation may not stack up, we wouldn't sell just because of that. And you know, some of the, the lessons we've learned from many investors over the years is that you know, often the, you make the money in the holding and the high quality businesses will continue to probably surprise you to the upside. So the, um, if, if, if the other, if it's ticking the boxes across competitive advantage and principal activity, a good dividend, the sustainable balance sheets in good shape, and we have a capable and trustworthy management team, well, you know, why would you sell it? Mm. Just start again. You know, you got to try and f- find something that's going to replace it with, with better attributes, mm. which is hard. It's definitely one of those things that I find um, that. It tends to be a relationship between more active managers and those returns falling away. Um, one thing that you know we can talk about when we talk about discount rates is the, the cash rate, interest rates at the moment being very low. And I know you guys are fans of, of uh, Mrs. Buffett and, and Mungo, and you, you head over to Omaha every now and again. When it comes to the valuation piece, um, do you subscribe to their idea about? you know, Charlie's idea about cash coming from the business is just like cash comes from any other business and therefore it should be discounted as such? Yeah, a little bit. I think we're probably at the starting point a little bit more practical than that. We probably treat our cash position within our portfolios um, a little bit differently. People come to a fund manager typically or should do to invest in their product. Mm. So whether it's the, the Sol's large cap or BKI or Contact X50, um, generally speaking, you probably should be nearly fully invested because that's what people are coming to you to, to have exposure to. They've got all the opportunity in the world to put cash aside and, and put in stuff put stuff in fixed interest or term deposits or whatever it is. So the starting point of our cash positions in our portfolio is probably seen a little bit differently to, to, to sort of generally speaking in terms of, of what's the discount on that, on that cash. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know... In low-rate environments, you're not going to get the income or the distribution or the interest payment that you would have typically got when when rates were five, six percent. Uh, so it does does vary the, the the discount rate you put, or you know what what the DCF outcome might might be. But 
But having said that, you might find a stock's better off valued at a, some, of, some of the parts or a EVD EBITDA multiple or, or something, something like that. So we're not, we're not beholden to just PE or DCF. Mm. We're trying to encourage our analysts to be as flexible as, as possible and try and find the true valuation that maybe the market hasn't quite discovered yet. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to look at it. I've got to admit, whenever I try and do a valuation of sole pats, it's always the sum of the parts um, because there's so many parts and it's, uh, it's growing uh, pretty well. Um, I just touched on there. I, I've heard before, uh, Jared told me before we recorded the show that uh, you guys are quite keen to get over to Omaha and, and go along to Woodstock for capitalists. Um, I'm interested to know, um, because of the connections you would have made here in Australia but also abroad, um, some of the investors that you two draw most of your wisdom from, maybe they're you know maybe they write regularly, maybe they they've written some books. You maybe you may not have met them personally, maybe you have. Um, I, I know one story that um, that you've come up with, and it's in some of the, the presentation material. But perhaps I'll leave it to you guys. Maybe will you can you can kick things off there? Yeah. So the the annual trip to Omaha is is a great one that we've, we've been fortunate to do. Like in the last week, I just sit now lounge rooms like everyone else and watch it on the on the webcast and watch watch Warren Buffett. But um, what we've done over the last few years is then try and combine that with trying to meet some other investors in the States. Um, you know, we, we actually catch up with a lot of Australian investors over there too in America. And then we try and see some of the Australian companies that have US operations as well as we can. So we try and spend a week to 10 days over there. And it's a, it's a great trip and it's, it's good fun. But um, over the last couple of years, some of the really useful meetings that I think we've had have been with um, Peter Kaufman. Peter Kaufman wrote Poor Charlie's Almanac. Uh, mm. He's a very successful investor in, in, on his own. Um, had a great dinner with him mm. many years ago. I got some, a lot of wisdom out of that that, um, that Tom and I often talk about. Um, Tom Gaynor, who runs Markel, we had dinner with him mm. one night as well. Um, he's very much in this camp of buying high-quality businesses that are appropriately levered. Um, and, and again, trying to align yourself with, with good people. So we're taking a lot of lessons out of that. He has a meeting also after the, the day after the Berkshire mm. meeting. And then last year when we went, we met um, Chuck Acra. Chuck's got a, a fund that's based in a small town, Virginia, I think. Yep. And, um, and and he's, that was kind of, my takeaway from that trip was, and I, you know, we touched on it already, but again, about these quality businesses. And he said, now, the quality businesses continue to surprise you on the upside and you know, hold on to them and, and buy the good businesses. And um, now those learnings, and that was just a cup of tea we had with him, and it was, you know, it's really valuable for us. Hmm. I think the only, only other thing to add there is each time we've gone, there's been different um, environments of investing and economic activity. So I think the first year that we went, you know, the, the Australian dollar was a dollar ten US, which had never really been at before, and so we were trying to focus on what the US dollar um, as a currency meant. Was it still going to be, you know, the world leading currency? And then we had the, you know, the arrival of Amazon, and um, and then they bought a big business, Precision Cast Parts, and they based that on a management team as opposed to buying a business a monkey could run because one day a monkey will run it which was a huge change in, in thought from them. Um, and then, you know, right down to going to lectures at, at unis and, and, and seeing the business school of the university put on a, an exhibition of, of getting fund managers on stage and asking them questions and just entrenching you in, 
in wisdom. Uh, I think one of the other good meetings we had, Will, was uh, Sam Zell in Chicago. Sam Zell, um, and Leo, his sister, it was just remarkable. You know, you book a, a half hour slot to see these guys and, you know, two and a half hours later, you, you sort of leave the office just buzzing full of wisdom. It's, it's great. So that's the one thing we, we missed this year was not being able to travel and, and get, get some insights out of these guys. And that's the thing, Owen. Like a lot of it, a lot of it is just it's wisdom, and it's it's not rocket science. You know, I walk out of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting each year. Particularly, you get from Charlie Munger is he's just so rational and sensible, and tries to take the emotion out of play. And you know, they're not there's not any high finance going on or advanced mathematics. It's just you know, good, long term, sensible thinking. One of the things that you brought up Tom Gaynor from Mark Elcourt and, um, of course, Berkshire Hathaway with the sim- similar insurance-style business and that float that they can invest. And then we look, you know, here across back to Australia, and a lot of people think that, um, I guess, the sole way of investing is the Australian version of that, um, you know, this permanent capital. And one thing I want to ask both of you about is how do you think that's, that has enabled you to invest better than um, another fund manager may be able to? We're a bit different to a, a private equity business or a, or a, a big fundy relying on, a, on an insta mandate that Will spoke about before. You just don't know when they're going to call that capital back from you. So I think the beauty of having closed-end capital is you can look, you can look as far out as you want, whether it be five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, 50 years, whatever it is, you don't have an end end in sight. Maybe you're putting something together to have a an event and you're, you know, you're having an acquisition strategy. That's, that's a little bit different. But generally speaking, if you've got that ability to uh, back a mature business and run it and improve it and, and run it through the cycle, that's, that's wonderful. But if you've all of a sudden then got the ability to, with one of your next investments, go into the incubation stage, you know, buy 20, 30% of it, put a couple of directors on the board um, and help help direct that that business into the future and give it a bit of financial strength and, and longevity, then then you create a TPG or you create a new hope or you create a, a Brickworks. And I think that's been the, the beauty and the, the secret ingredient of, of Souls is we've just looked so far out because we've got this closed structure of, of capital and, and all all we're doing is we're being custodians of that capital. You know, we're not trying to, to run it and be the next best portfolio manager and, and have one generation uh, portfolio management business. We're trying to create businesses that are going to be here forever. Mm. And you don't, you don't get that if you've got an open-ended product. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I see it quite a bit. You, you mentioned, Will, that... Yeah, one of the things that Charlie Munger is known for, and of course he is, is just this ability to think rationally almost all the time. Like there's always a rational answer for almost everything. And one t- probably the most common way I see fund managers fall down is when they know that they have to act rationally, but they can't because of some mandate or because of some you know, preconceived idea that they have to window dress on the last day of every month or, or something like this. Because like you said, you fall into that death spiral and it's constantly looming over your shoulder. It's... It's waiting there for you. If you fall 10% behind, you get myopic investors. Even in your business with the X50 fund and contact, you know, you've got so much of your own personal money into, behind it. You could, I get the impression that 
the both of you can just think with a bit more clarity because you don't, I mean, yes, you, you care for your investors, absolutely, but you don't have that pressure, a constant nagging over your shoulder. No, it's, it's a, it's a, you're spot on as, as far as we're concerned. So in terms of developing this, these new open-ended products, I think we have the, we're coming at it a bit differently to everyone else, that so we have the, the permanent capital there first in a sustainable business. Um, and we're now just looking at new products where we, we can grow and offer just different solutions to, to people who want to invest alongside us. Um, but in terms of the, we, we just don't get caught up in that month-to-month treadmill. And mm. you know, we've had days where we've run into other fundies and you're saying, how are you going? And, it's, and they say, oh, we're having a good month. And mate, it's, it's the eighth. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a way of investing that it just doesn't, we, we just don't think that way. And, mm. you know, we're, yeah, and, and maybe that's part of the, you know, the sole patch DNA that's just come through to us. And a, you know, a business has been listed since 1903, never failed to pay a dividend and really things long-term. I think we're just trying to do that with, with contact and then and the products that we're investing in as well. Mm. As we come to the back end, guys, there are two more questions. One would be, um, you've obviously got the X50 fund. Um, how can anyone... Uh, find out more about the two of you getting contact with contact or anything like that. Um, just on our website, on contactam.com.au is is the simplest way. Mm. Um, we you know we we sort of try and fly under the radar a little bit as individuals. You won't you won't read too much too much on us, but um, you know all the facts and figures are in in the you know the, the PDS or or annual reports on our on our website. Great. I think I, um, I think I might have skipped over one, and I'll provide. By the way, I'll provide all the links in the show notes. But I think I might have skipped over one question. Is that uh, the daily meetings that you have? Mm-hmm. Can you explain to us what they are and, and who's there and how it takes just how it takes place? Yeah, sure. So as I said, we have a team of eight. Uh, there's Tom and I, and then Tom's father Rob comes to the meetings when when he can, which is most days. Uh, Charlie, our dealer, runs it and gives us a traditional. A morning meeting in, in that that's a, a what happened in the market yesterday, what's happened overnight, um, interesting research, interesting articles, and then we just we go around the room. Where we're a little bit unique is that all our analysts are generalists in that we don't have sector specific analysts. We think it's more valuable. You know, Tom and I are analysts as well as portfolio managers, but we think it creates a more robust discussion um, and it doesn't force people into a narrow thinking where they might just be the bank's analyst and they're only concerned about the CBA better than ANZ rather than think about the whole uh, the whole portfolio and the opportunities in the market. And then indeed when you know, when we're talking about CBA versus ANZ, there's there's wider discussion. So yeah, that goes on in the meetings too. So each morning we, we do that and that's a bit of a news flow. Each week we then will go through a stock or two in, in more detail of this, this checklist that I discussed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where you know, we get the model on the screen uh, the analyst presents, uh, and, and that's a point where we, you know, kind of encourage a few challenges, uh, you know, respectful disagreement. You know, we, we think the disagreement is good, but um, you know, we, we, and then we also then kind of then bring it back to this whole speak up if you don't agree, because you know this our, our rule together of I told you so permeates through the rest of the business as well. Mm. So I would say um, it's, it's, a, it's a good team effort. But the morning meeting goes for what, 15, 20 minutes generally. Uh, and then you know, we're normally we're all here. But at the moment, we're doing that through Microsoft Teams. 
um, in this new world we're in, and that's that's working pretty well also. Mm. But the team, the team are also aligned. They all they all own um, stock in the in the products we manage. So you know the 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 alignment filters right the way through to to our analysts in our in our business as well, which is which we think is really important. Mm. That's an interesting one, Tom. Just quickly, do you when you think about that alignment, do you does does the team get rewarded with longer term? Uh, options or incentive structures. I've heard of um, some managers paying out um, options that vest over three years equally or five years, something like that, to try and drive home that long-term incentive structure. Yeah, we do. We have a, an, an LTI, 12-month LTI, which is, a, which is a, a, a bonus that we encourage our analysts to, to buy stock. Uh, BKI and now the X50 funds open, um, you know, unit, units into that fund. And they're, they're more than willing to do that and, and, and have done that. So, you know, that's, that alignment, again, from a, from a longer-term bonus point of view is, is really important. And it just, just changes the dynamic when you're in a meeting, you know, with a morning meeting that we all just talked about. You, you know, you're pitching on an idea that you know is a good idea and you want to invest in it because you own units or shares in the products that we manage. So, you know, it sort of just completes the circle and, and changes the psyche a little bit. Mm. For sure. Okay, fellas, last question. Um, maybe we'll start with you. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing about money, finance, or investing, mate, what would it be? Um, I think you got to start early. I think, and you know, one of the one of the great powers of investing is compounding. The time is your friend, but I think if you can just buy the high quality businesses and, and hold on to them, you'll, you'll generally do pretty well. I think. Mm. You know, when you start out in this you know you, you try and get cute and trade about too much and try and buy something cheap and over doubles but i think they're often the the big boring high quality income producing businesses that are managed by good people you know other ones you should own for the long term i think the only other thing in this game as well you've got to stay pretty humble yeah. and you've got to stay you got to, persistence is important because you're going to be wrong a lot and you just got to kind of keep learning Stay curious and, and stay for the long term. There's a lot in that one. I like a good answer, mate. <laughs> How about you, Tom? No pressure. Um, yeah, I think one of the one of the dinners that Will mentioned before when we were in Omaha was with with Peter Kaufman, and you know what he what he told told us at the end um, really resonated with us, and it was don't have destination anxiety, which which simply meant don't don't try and get there too fast, and I think. From my point point of view, being you know a fifth generation family member in in Souls was probably when I started it. You know, you'd probably want to try and get to that sort of middle management um, area as soon as you could, and with the risk of not learning anything or having any experience. So, I think you know if I'd told myself that or heard that 20, 30 years ago, then um, just you know take the foot off the gas, things will be what it'll be, and you know surround yourself with with good quality people, then, you know, things, things will work out. Great, great advice, gents, from both of you. It's uh, the first episode we've ever done with three of us and um, I couldn't have thought of two better blokes to do it with. So thanks for finding time today, guys. Well, we appreciate the opportunity, John. Thanks very much for having us. Good on you, Alan. Thanks very much.